Our sermon text this morning is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Listen carefully. These are the words of God. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while, they were, um, <clears throat> but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written. And thus, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So traditionally, the book of Common Prayer has the theme of reflection uh, and preaching for this Lord's Day to focus on the humanity of Christ, his human nature. However, there's an aspect of Christ's human nature that I believe is kind of neglected in our study and devotion today. That is what I would like to call today the flesh and boneness of Christ. The flesh and boneness of Christ. It seems that when Christmas comes around, we find ourselves delighted in the vision of a glorious newborn baby in a manger, perhaps depicted with an otherworldly glow or a halo and his two chubby baby fingers making that weird peace sign thing from the old paintings. Interestingly enough, the paintings will also have him in swaddling clothes that are homely and white to symbolize his purity and to also foreshadow those same garments that he will wear in his images of his crucifixion. Being stripped bare as he was in the stable that miraculous night. In our Christmas meditations and readings, looking at baby Jesus, we are confronted with a fundamental question and a confusing and troubling one that's infused into Luke's gospel from beginning to end. And that question is, how human was Jesus? And what does that mean for humans? Some of you might be wondering, why are we reflecting on an Easter text at the end of Luke when there's plenty of stuff in the beginning of Luke that is very Christmassy? And I would like to point out to you that Luke in this chapter is pointing back to the beginning. 
Notice the parallels between the events of this chapter that we're in and the events of the beginning of Luke. Firstly, Joseph is betrothed to Mary, sees to her care as she bears in her womb the Christ, and then another Joseph, at the end of Luke, of Arimathea, sees to the tomb where Jesus will come forth reborn. Secondly, an angel comes to young Mary who is afraid, but is comforted by the news of the Messiah. And then we have two Marys coming to the tomb and seeing angels are afraid, but are once again comforted by the news of the risen Messiah. Thirdly, Mary wraps Jesus in swaddling clothes, lays him in a manger. And then in contrast, Joseph of Arimathea has Jesus wrapped in fine linen and lies him in an expensive rich man's tomb. Fourthly, both Simeon and Anna were filled with the fire of the Holy Ghost. Simon, I mean, Simeon sang and blessed them, and Anna bore witness that the child would redeem Jerusalem. They are like the two on the road to Emmaus, who burned in their hearts as the Spirit bore witness unto them that they were in the presence of their master, and then like Anna, bore witness to everyone else. Fifthly, the boy Jesus left his parents to stay in his father's house, be about his father's business, and in our chapter, Jesus leaves his disciples to ascend to his father and enter his heavenly temple, and his disciples afterward were continually in the temple praising God and blessing him, being about his business. Luke is communicating that the end of the gospel is no end at all, but the resurrection and ascension is a new, a new beginning and a new creation. The birth of Christ is the beginning of a new beginning. Luke makes it clear in these parallels that the new is exceeding the old, but let's look at this carefully he wants to be very clear that the new is greater and exceeds the old for sure, yet it is not different in substance from the old. Luke is saying in his comparison of the first events with the last events in our chapter that Jesus' risen from the dead body is glorious and heavenly and incorruptible, yes, but is as much flesh and bone as his born of the Virgin Mary and sleeping in a manger body. Luke is making it clear that Jesus did not become something else when he rose from the dead. Jesus was still a man, the God-man for sure, but not a mere man. Certainly a flesh and bone man. And I believe Luke is focusing on this truth with intensity as he reports the historical facts. Allow me to briefly outline the whole chapter and point out Luke's historical approach to understanding, firstly, Jesus as the second Adam and then as the risen King of Kings. At the beginning of this chapter, the angels tell the women at the tomb that Jesus has risen. They're the first witnesses to the others of the resurrection. Jesus is then with the two men on the road to Emmaus right before this, and he instructs them, but 
They only recognize him when? When he breaks bread with them and blesses it. But as soon as they recognize him, he vanishes. And then the two go and announce Jesus has risen to the 11 in Jerusalem. And as they're bearing witness, Jesus reappears and shows those slow to believe his hands and his feet. But once again, there's a meal which he eats in their presence. And then he instructs the 11, opening their understanding so that they would comprehend the scriptures, says the text. And then he commissions them as witnesses of his death and resurrection and sends them out to preach repentance and remission of sins to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. He promises to send the Spirit to empower them in their witness. And then he gives them a benediction, stretching his wings out over them. And then he ascends and they worship and rejoice and wait for the Spirit. I want to draw your attention to the pattern at the center of Jesus' interaction with his disciples. Notice this, first with the two and then the 11. The two on the road, the 11 in the room. The two on the road did not recognize Jesus until he broke bread and blessed it and gave it to them. And then before the 11, Jesus ate, once again, in order to show that he was actually risen and standing bodily before them and not a spirit. Notice that only after this instruction accompanying a meal, a meal accompanying instruction, that they are able to have their eyes opened and are ready to tell the world that Jesus lives. Jesus' instruction accompanies a meal to this day. And we're strengthened by it for a bold witness in the world. Also notice that the minds of the two on the road to Emmaus are opened after sharing the meal. And in similar fashion, the 11 are convicted of Jesus' word when he ate in their presence, fish and honeycomb. Interestingly enough, this harkens back to the beginning where Adam and Eve ate and their eyes were opened. At least I'm reminded of it. When the first Adam ate with his wife, through them our minds were made subject to sin and darkened. Adam's eating made him and his wife hide for shame, but Christ's eating fills his disciples, his followers, the lovers of Christ, with shameless rejoicing in the house of the Lord. Adam's eating had him and Eve blame-shifting, and Christ's eating confirms what was written of old, that the Christ would suffer and die in the flesh and rise in the flesh to save his people from their sins. Adam's eating resulted in a curse, but after Jesus, the second Adam, ate in the presence of the 11, he sent them out with the promise of the Spirit and a blessing. Adam's sin emptied and desolated, but Christ's work fulfilled all righteousness. Christ is revealed as he truly is, the second Adam that doesn't listen to the serpent, but it crushes him. So, Jesus ate fish and honeycomb for a few reasons. There are lots of interesting text about people's diet in the Bible that go unexplained simply because they seem to come out of nowhere. 
The most obvious reason for his eating is because he saw the 11 didn't believe, even after he showed them his hands and his feet, and even he invited them to handle him, and we know that they actually did. After eating, he instructed them, opened their understanding. Jesus ate to demonstrate his abiding humanity, to show once again that he is still a flesh and bone son of man. And amazingly, he remains a flesh and bone son of man, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And so, therefore, we eat this bread and wine to remember he abides with us and that he invites us to participate in his divine life by the power of the Spirit. He ate to show participation in our human life, and we eat to participate in his new life. However, I believe we can go a little deeper into Jesus' eating by looking at what he ate exactly, namely, broiled fish and honeycomb. We see that Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, ate locusts and wild honey. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find anyone eating locusts. The law doesn't actually prohibit you eating locusts. However, the prophets constantly use them as a type of the armies of the nations who come against Israel. Locusts are depicted as warring Gentiles coming to consume the land, and they're never predicted, uh, depicted as food or nourishment. And honey is the food of the promised land of Canaan. Remember, it's flowing with milk and honey. God's covenant promised a land for his people and promised blessing therein. So when the prophet John the Baptist dips the angry Gentile locusts in covenant blessing honey and eats it, he's saying, as the messenger of the king, that when the king comes, He's going to incorporate into his body those who were long ago cut off, estranged, at odds, at war with Israel, the people of God, and include them in the community and in the covenant blessing. For from the rising of the sun, even unto its going down, my name shall be great among the nations, among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And interestingly, in Jesus' prophetic diet, Jesus doesn't eat the warring locust, but instead he eats the food of the sea, fish. The sea symbolizes the domain of the Gentiles. God's people are the people of the land and do not go around in boats like wayfaring Gentiles. And fish are the food that inhabits the sea, the Gentile sea, and they symbolize Gentile men. This is why Jesus calls the disciples to follow him so that they may become fishers of men. And when John the Baptist passes the torch to Jesus, the nations are subdued. The devil is bound with respect to, to uh, deceiving the nations. And Jesus commissions his church to continue to subdue the nations. And for Jesus, the nations are like fish caught in the net of the gospel. They're no longer angry locusts, which are normally eaters and not food, but they're like fish in a barrel. And so he eats them. 
with covenant blessing honey, a.k.a. he saves them, taking them into his body, the church, giving them covenant blessing, filling them with the Spirit, sending them out into the world. And Jesus is proclaiming that he is the flesh and bone king that subdues and conquers all nations in his flesh by the power of the gospel in history. It is important that we notice that Luke is doing something in this chapter. He's recording history and pointing out to us types and parallels so that we might know what these historical events mean. The real historical flesh and bone Jesus is undoing the sin of a real historical flesh and bone Adam and will bring corrupted sons of Adam into his new resurrection life in a new creation forever. And Jesus is not a big abstract idea symbolizing the good. And Adam is not merely a big abstract idea symbolizing rebellion or foolishness. They are historical flesh and bone men whose life and deeds actually affected the destinies of the human race and affected what will ultimately become of our flesh and bone bodies. Will we be condemned forever? Will we rot in hell? Will we languish? Who can take our ruined lives and raise them from the dead? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then continuing in verse 49, as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is Adam, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Jesus' birth and resurrection proclaim to you that as your spirit prospers on account of your faith in him, your body will prosper being glorified. You may have been estranged before, but now you are physically brought near. Luke constantly, constantly shows us that objective historical events and persons are made significant because of the types we see in the past. Jesus' virgin birth is as much a matter of historical record as his resurrection from the dead. But it's not merely historical record of incidents with no explanation as to their significance or what it means to us. Also, these things are not merely symbols with no objective reality only given to remind us of nice stories, big ideas, and universal truths. Jesus communicates this very thing to his disciples, first the two on the road, and then the 11 in the room. The two on the road, he says this, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then to the 11 in verse 44, all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses the prophets, and the psalms concerning me. Jesus says that all things written in the law, all these historical realities from Scripture are types and shadows, and he is the historical, resurrected, flesh and bone fulfillment of them all. Jesus isn't merely a historical figure whose teachings give some explanation and purpose to the universe. He is the purpose of the universe. 
Jesus is not a mere symbol of universal truth that represents spiritual enlightenment for those of all faiths. Jesus is the only truth, and he has confirmed that fact in history by rising bodily from the dead. This point of Luke is summed up in verse 39. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see I have. It is as if Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us, try and spiritualize this. Luke is banning us from spiritualizing the resurrection account. The resurrection of Jesus cannot be spiritualized into a moral tale of how everyone gets a second chance or something. Spiritualizing the resurrection is the easy way because you can't wrestle with the spirit. The risen Christ, on the other hand, says, handle me, see. And then when we repent and handle him, we are confronted with the magnificent fulfillment that he is of all the types in all the scriptures. Just so we behold Jesus as a baby who was handled and cared for by his parents and actually grew in favor with God and man. And it's truly amazing how human Jesus is. And it is humbling for us to behold him as he is. And so what does that mean for you and me? One, it means he's Lord. And we owe him exclusive and complete devotion. If when he came to us, he was just a ghost baby or something, or he was just a hovering spirit with his 12 followers, he really would not have come to live as we live. And therefore, he wouldn't really have anything to say about the lowly and earthly affairs of our lives. But instead, Hebrews 2.14 says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is, the devil. He was born into this world like all of us with a little baby body and he grew and worked and worshiped and suffered and all without sin and broke the devil's teeth. So now all bets are off. You can't work like you want. You can't live like you want. You can't raise your kids how you want. You cannot be a kid like you want. Jesus is Lord. You have to sit and listen to him. But you know what? There's a second point here. Not only does he have you, but because of his physical flesh and bone body, you can have him. You can handle him and see. You can touch him. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. You can have Jesus as you are. You don't have to transcend. He comes to you. Isn't it such a wonderful comfort? And thirdly, it means that his bodily coming, his flesh and boneness, means that he's a sympathetic high priest. Hebrew, Hebrews <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God 
to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He's been touched with everything you're going through now and will be going through. And he bids you come and sit at his feet for his instruction and break bread. Every single blessing that God planned to give mankind, he communicated us, he communicated to us through this child, the man, Jesus Christ. And lastly, the birth of baby Jesus means that the physical world is not an illusion. Your body is not a prison for your soul. And your future is a physical future with a glory that awaits it, that outshines the sun. So feast on these feast days, laugh and play with your children, sing really loud, work with all your might, and then rest on Christ's merits and enjoy his creation. For he made it and he called it good. And it will be even better when he's done with it because he has come in the flesh to cast down death by death and upon those in the grave he is bestowing life.